We're going to read verses 6 through 8 this morning. Then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Well, I am not having... <laughs> Damn, when the devil fights, he really fights, don't he? I got it. Hey, Lord. Romans chapter 2, verse 6 through 8 says this. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Let's pray. Father, Lord, how beautiful you are, how holy and righteous are you. Lord, when we see you, for the holiness that you possess, and the great and mighty power that you have, it's hard not to feel faint. And when we stand to speak your word, knowing who you are, we feel inadequate. It seems like such a great task for such an unworthy servant. God, we pray that our hearts will not fail this morning. Our voice will remain strong. And our heart and our mind fixed on you. And you alone. Father, we pray today that we will all see the magnificence of your being. Father, we pray that we will see the endless, abundant grace that you have bestowed. Father, we also pray that we may understand the magnitude of your wrath. so that we may realize the power of your grace. That we may see 
Lord, your beautiful gift. In the right perspective. As measured against the punishment that will come for not accepting something so great and beautiful as your grace that has been given to us. Free, but not without cost. Father, I pray that hearts will be fixed on you this morning. And that those who are here to hear and those who are watching online, Father, I pray that you will help us, Lord, to keep our attention fastened to you. And Lord, I pray today that I will not get in your way. That somehow I will not try to add to or take away from your word because it's already perfect. We pray this in the name of your beautiful son, Jesus. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Thankful to the Lord this morning for His love and His endless mercy. Been a tough week of study. Not tough because I don't want to hear what God has to say, but tough because when I see the magnitude of it, how can I, a mere mortal person, handle such great a task, such beautiful words? I've always felt inadequate in the pulpit most days, but there's sometimes that you just feel like a mouse of a man, and I think I'd rather crawl underneath this thing and let somebody else do what God has set before us today. But nonetheless, we'll dig into His Word together. And we'll deliver what God has to say using His words and minimize mine. In our opening text, we see We see that one day it's coming. A day of judgment. Jesus said in that day or in that great day a few different times in His ministry, even in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, we see that in that day. We live in a time where we want to talk about the love of God. And listen, we need to understand the love of God, but we have to understand that without understanding the wrath of God, how can we even see how big the love of God is? My grandmother's favorite song was Amazing Grace. To be honest with you, I didn't like that song too much. (laughs) 
I got two hangies today. Brother Dave is riding with me times two. My grandmother would sing the song Amazing Grace. You know the words. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. A song written by the captain of a slave boat. Once he finally realized who God was and how deep his grace. But I didn't care for that song too much because honestly, it wasn't snappy. It didn't have a didn't have a, a melody that made my heart feel good. It didn't, didn't do anything for me. It didn't do anything because I didn't realize how amazing God's grace was. And so to me, it was just another song like all the other songs that my family sang. In our church growing up, there was harmony everywhere didn't have to have harmony singers in a praise choir, to be quite honest. All it took is for someone to hit the first line or the first note or the first line and everybody would converge together and we'd see family members elbowing each other because they were going flat or sharp. We were one of those families or they're singing the wrong part or you're singing my part, get off and find your own. But oh, I long for the days that I wish I could go back in that center block building. Listen, I, I know, uh, listen, I, I talk about tradition a lot, and, and sometimes we, 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 well, we, we worship at the sacred cows of religion, wishing that we had it. That's not the way Grandpa did it and Grandma did it. You see, I don't long so much for the tradition as I long for a church that realizes how amazing God's grace is. And I remember those poor folks, and I remember my grandma and my grandpa living in this shack of a house, but yet being so thankful for all that God had given them. Partly because grandpa owned a Chrysler. But after a woman that had been through so much, having five children, Four of them at home, and her husband killed in an accident. Had to move her family away to another place to where she could find work and be close to her adult son who was willing to help with the kids. Later on, finding love in my grandfather and having two more children with him, but life was still never easy. They never had more money than month. But yet, they praise God because they never went hungry. You see, their love for God and the amazing part of His grace wasn't what God could do for them and in a financial way or in a health way. My grandmother spent the last years of her life paralyzed from the waist down, people having to do for her. But still yet, those two arms that would work would raise toward heaven and praise Him for His abundant grace. Why? Because, listen, it was about eternal life that God had supplied for them and not about the stuff. The stuff doesn't matter. How wonderful your house here really doesn't matter because it's where we will spend eternity that matters this morning, folks. Last week we talked about the lamb. 
and Jesus being that Passover lamb for us, willing to sacrifice himself. But we must talk about what else happened on the cross. We must talk about the wrath of God that was laid on Him and realize today that while salvation is free to you and to I, it came with a cost. Without understanding God's wrath, we don't understand even the severity of our sin. And without an understanding of God's wrath, we don't understand Jesus' agony before He even went to the cross. And we don't understand the true purpose of the cross. I think back of when Jesus was in the garden. And I'd like us to look at that passage for just a minute. And we'll go to Matthew in his account in chapter 26, verses 36 through 39. Let's look at this again. Well, Pastor, you used part of that passage last week, I know, and we're using it again this week. Isn't it sweet how we can continue to read God's Word and it never gets old, amen? It never stops speaking to my heart and it never stops showing me new things and deeper things of the love of God. How sweet the Word of God that we have today, amen? And in Matthew 26, starting at verse 36, it says, Then Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, Listen to these words, My soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Think about this for a minute. I've long thought, and I was wrong about it, but I've long thought that the agony of Jesus in the garden was about what He was about ready to endure as far as the Roman uh, scourging that would happen. The cat of nine tails with the pieces of metal that were woven through the leather that would be cast on His back and then pulled off and flesh being removed from His back with every blow and every retraction of the cat of nine tails over and over again. I thought it was that painful in that suffering that would make him sorrowful. But listen, folks, that had nothing to do with it, I believe, today. I believe it was about what the Father was about to inflict upon him by making him drink the cup of the wrath of God for you and I that we would have that should belong to us. But he took our place and he drank from the bitter cup so that you and I would not have to. It wasn't about the physical pain. It was about the father turning his face away. I don't know if you have ever disappointed your parents. But I sure disappointed mine a time or two. Boy, that sounds great on a microphone, doesn't it? I got two separate hankies today, though. That way I don't. I remember having to go to my dad. I went to my dad's house, and I've told you the story before. I got in some trouble, and the police were coming to get me. Went to my father's house. He said, son, you got 
two choices right here, right now. You can turn around and get in that car and you can leave up this, down that lane like you came up it. And you can keep running. And that's your prerogative if you want to do that. Or you can let me take you and turn yourself in. And if you do the right thing, I'll stand with you. I remember seeing the pain in my father's face. Maybe you've seen it in your parents' face before. I don't know. I hope you did. I hope you haven't. But if, if I don't miss my guess, I would, I would bet that every one of you done that a time or two. And I remember seeing the look on my father's face of disappointment. And though my father didn't turn his back on me, but I still remember the pit I fell in my, felt in my stomach. My dad says, will you wait right there? And he turned around and shut the door. But my father turned the other way. And he shut the door behind him. I felt this awful feeling of of anxiety and separation hit me. And inside, I was just hoping that he was just going to go to get his keys and come back. You see, the thought of not being able to go into my father's house, the thought of my father turning his face away from me, as much as he and I disagreed on some things, that moment in my life, I felt as about as low as I could get. Jesus had been in eternal harmony with his Father. You know, sometimes we, we talk about pain and suffering and it's a result of sin. And while that is true, it's not. It is the result of sin. But the real pain and suffering is not being able to be in God's holy presence. And the reason that we're broken off from the Father is because of sin. Could you imagine how Adam and Eve felt that day that they were run out of the garden? Up until then, they've been able to eat of the tree of life. It did not have to worry about a tomorrow or pain or suffering, but because of their sin, they had broken fellowship with the Father. 
And they no longer were able to walk with him in the cool of the day as they used to. Because of what they had done. They had broken God's holy law. And you see, that's what's missing in the hearts of men and women today. And they don't know it. There's something that is missing from their lives. And you and I today who know Jesus Christ, we know the answer to that question. Why do I, no matter what I do, no matter what I get, and we see young people, we see young people get to stardom and they get rich and they buy everything they can imagine, any exotic thing. They withhold nothing from themselves, but still we see them just absolutely lose it, even to some, even taking their own life because when they had everything that this world could offer, everything that could be given to them, they had received and they had more money in the bank to get even more if they could dream it up but what they found was that it was empty and there's nothing that any worldly thing can do to satisfy the longing in our soul to be able to have fellowship with almighty God Jesus knew that by taking on our sin and our shame to be our propitiation, our substitutionary sacrifice. To do that, the Father would have to look away. And the pain of being separated from Almighty God, His Father, was such a sorrowful price to have to pay. For you and for me. You see, Isaiah describes this bitter cup of God's wrath that he drank for us. By the way, I found out that I didn't realize this, but Isaiah 53 is kind of known as a quote unquote forbidden chapter among the Jews. The rabbis kind of explain chapter 53 away and they don't read it and they don't study it and they don't talk about it because they can't envision a Messiah that is anything less than majestic, majestic or king-like. You see, they can't picture a Messiah that would come down in such humble means and allow Himself to be subjected to such torture. I saw a video on Wretched Radio, Todd Friel's program, and it was of Dr. John MacArthur explaining Isaiah 53 to Ben Shapiro, a Jew. You want to see something. It's about 10 minutes long. It's worth the view. And I thought, well, that's one person explaining that. Then later on, I was watching the testimony of a Jewish girl that was raised over actually right outside of Jerusalem. I'm, I'm talking about not a, not a Jew that grew up here, but I'm talking about a Jew that grew up right there amongst it all. And she would talk about it, how their attitudes would be toward Muslims and Christians and how she said this, and Isaiah 53 was a forbidden chapter of the sacred text. We weren't allowed to talk about it. Rabbis wouldn't teach about it. Because they can't fathom 
a Messiah who would allow such things to happen. They're looking for an almighty Messiah that comes back and that unleashes divine power upon their enemies and putting Israel back up to an established stronghold. But that's not what Jesus came to do. It was nothing political about it. But He came so that we could have life. And this young lady talked about how when she finally read the words of Isaiah 53, how it finally clicked to her. And how it finally made sense. Isaiah 53, I'm not going to read all of it, but verses 4-6 through says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Can you imagine Imagine the sinless person of Jesus Christ who had never done anything wrong even after walking 33 years upon this sinful earth yet never made a mistake and never did anything wrong but that perfect Lamb of God would allow such sin and such shame to be laid upon Him and allow God to take out His wrath and His fury against Him. Why? Because He stood in our place and took that which we deserve. Isaiah 53, go on down to verse 10. And this verse 10, this verse 10 gets me. This verse 10 makes me wonder what in the world God ever saw in me? What in the world He ever saw in you? that would cause him to do something so drastic, so unbelievable to his precious son. Verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and she, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. But out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By the knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He says, listen, what he Jesus saw on the cross Amen. Was the future looking forward when we would be covered by that righteousness on the day of judgment and be covered by what He did on the cross? It was because you and I today and the love that He had for us. It says, by His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and He shall bear their iniquities. He bore our sin and our shame knowing that one day, amen, looking to Jesus Christ, the author in the 
finisher of our faith, whom for the joy set before him. Amen. Listen to this. For the joy that is set before him, that is you and I being covered by his righteousness and what he did and the work of the cross of God pouring out his wrath upon him, looking to that day and the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You, me, all those who have surrendered and called Him Lord are the joy that was set before Him. Who, who in here can say for a minute that they are not loved. Yet the world is searching day after day for love that will satisfy the longing of their soul. Isn't that what Sister Debbie said? She found love in Jesus Christ. Listen, we can love our spouse wholeheartedly. And listen, my world is much better that I have one who becomes my helpmate and that we do this life together. But still yet, even Sal cannot fill the void in my heart that has been placed there by Almighty God. Only He can fill that today. He says, therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He makes intercession for you and for me. Do you realize what God did to his son? Do you realize for a minute what it means? to drink the cup of God's wrath and His fury. This is what Psalm 75 says, verse 7 through 10. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All of the horns of the wicked I will cut off from the horns of, and the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. 
He says those who are wicked, those who do not bow and call Jesus Christ Lord of their own free will will one day drink of that cup and drain it down to the dregs. You know what that means? Not one drop of God's wrath will, will be left over. They will drain it down all the way to the very end and it takes an eternity to drink it. Yes, we should look at the cross and see love. But friends, if we view not that love through the understanding of God's wrath, then we'll never see His grace as amazing. Because it's until we realize that that wrath was earned by me. You see, love is God's nature. It's who He is. He is love. But His wrath is His response for the rebellion of His creation. And that, my friends, is you and me. Body Bochum said this, don't think for a minute that God would crush His one and only Son on the cross and then let you slide by. No, not for a minute. There will be no, well, me and Jesus got our own thing going. No, listen. If you don't get there by the blood of Jesus, you're not getting there. Amen? If you don't get there through total surrender to Almighty God, then you'll not get there. Paul Washer said he was teaching at a school. And it was a, it was a Christian school. And he was talking to the head of the school there and he says that he had planned on speaking on the wrath of God and Jesus as a propitiation to satisfy the wrath. And he said, Mr. Washer, you'll have no problem here preaching on that. Our students, we are, are taught this. And you'll have no problem here. We look forward to hearing your message. So the day Paul Washer gets there and he starts speaking about Jesus being the propitiation, the substitutionary sacrifice. And he said that, I think it was one little girl finally kind of stood up and said, Mr. Washer, now, I'm sorry, the girl girl responded when he asked him what propitiation was. And she stood up and Jesus paid it all. But another little boy stood up almost in objection and said, Mr. Washer, he said, answer me this. He said, I find it hard to believe that one man and his sacrifice could be worth so much that it would pay the price for all men. How is that? Paul Walsh's response was this. If you take all of humanity and all that God has created both in created beings made in His image like you and I, if He took all of the created beings on, for all of time 
And then you add in all the majestic things, all of the earth and the world and the planets and everything that God created out of nothing and spoke into existence. He said if you took all of that and you put it in a scale over here and then you put Jesus on the other side, he said he would outweigh them all. Amen. That's how one man can pay the price for everyone. It's because Jesus outshines every other living and non-living thing. He was the only Son of God. And God loved you and He loved me so much that it was in his will to crush Jesus so that you and I could be restored to a right relationship with Almighty God. How great is the love of God. I started a story last week about little, Bill, little Bobby. Little Bobby was, was at a little schoolhouse outside of Chicago during the Great Depression. Somebody had been stealing lunches every couple days. They finally found it was little Bobby. Little Bobby had been stealing lunch because he was hungry and his family didn't have any food. It wasn't that he was hungry and he couldn't make it to get home to eat. It was that he was so hungry and he'd get home and there'd be nothing to eat. And Bobby had resorted to stealing lunches for, on occasion. And when the schoolmaster caught him, he knew that he had to be punished because he had broken a rule. Listen, it was a tough place, tough characters, a tough time. And order had to be maintained because if he allowed order to get out just a little bit, he would lose all control. And so he knew that he had to punish little Bobby. So he got his leather strap. You see, when he doled out punishment, he doled it out in front of the class. So that it would be a deterrent for those who saw it to not do the same thing. Listen, the cross is beautiful because our Savior hung on it. The cross is beautiful because it displays the amazing grace of God as measured against the wrath of God. But the cross of Jesus also ought to be a deterrent lest we face such a harsh penalty. And since we do not have the majesty of Jesus Christ, we'll spend an eternity trying to pay it back. Listen, your neighbors, your family, your loved ones, who don't know Jesus, they'll spend an eternity trying to pay it back and pay the debt that they owe for breaking God's holy law. So the schoolmaster got his strap, wrapped it around his hand, told little Bobby to take off his jacket. He took off his jacket, his coat. He had another jacket and a heavy sweater. He finally got all that out and got him down to his what we call undershirt. 
I don't know if that's the real term, what you call him. He was down to his undershirt, his T-shirt. He told Bobby to pull the T-shirt up. See, when he gave out justice, he gave it out justice on the skin. And so little Bobby pulled up his shirt so that he could take the beating that he earned. I think deserved is a wrong way to say it sometimes, isn't it? It's one thing to deserve something. It's another thing to purchase it. Those who received the wrath of God purchased it. They earned it. The wages of sin is death. Little Bobby earned the stripes he was about ready to get. And as he pulled his shirt up, the schoolmaster could see every rib. And his spine, he was so, so thin and so malnourished. Everybody in the class just kind of gasped. And that old school teacher swallowed down real hard because he knew that he had to maintain the law. By the way, the Bible calls the law a taskmaster. That school teacher reared back about ready to give Bobby his first stripe. And big Jim from the back, a big old boy, he says, hold on, teacher. I'll take this one for Bobby. And so as he come up the aisle of that little one-room schoolhouse, unbuttoning his coat and taking off his coat, and he took off even down to his undershirt, just took it off. And he went up there and kind of bent over the desk a little bit and grabbed on and said, teacher, I'll take this one for Bobby so he don't have to. I know he did wrong, but listen, but I'll take this one. And the teacher was just captivated by the love that Big Jim had over little Bobby, knowing that Jim didn't do anything wrong. It was Bobby who had done the wrong, but still yet he was willing to take the punishment, seeing how frail and realizing that Bobby couldn't even take that kind of punishment. He was in such bad shape. And the schoolmaster for a minute just kind of wanted to just give him a few, you know, them kind of swats that grandmas give. My grandma had a thing that hung in her kitchen said, Mamaw's Paddle. And it had a bunch of padding on it and lace. <laughs> By the way, I can tell you from experience, grandma knew how to turn that paddle around. It was hard on the other side. He wanted to give him one of them Mamaw's You know what I'm saying? But then he said this. In his mind, he thought, it's great that Big Jim is willing to take the whipping, but they got to realize that they're going to jump in and take somebody's whooping. The penalty's not going to be less severe. Matter of fact, the schoolmaster of that day realized that if he's going to deter people like little Bobby from stealing... And he's going to make people think twice about jumping up and taking the punishment of someone else. Then he better make sure that Big Jim learned a lesson too. And the story says that that schoolmaster beat Big Jim that day harder than he'd ever beat a kid before. 
He said the first stripe, he was hard. He said, but he wanted everyone else to learn if Big Jim was going to take this, then he wanted to make sure that nobody would want to ever break the law in his classroom again. And so the next one got harder and harder until the last stripe he gave he gave it everything he had and he laid all of his power and all of his might into that strap and it come across Big Jim's back harder than anything that Big Jim had ever experienced in his life. You see, the schoolmaster gave it all and held back not one ounce of punishment. Big Jim with tears running down his face. Little Bobby, tears running down his face. And the schoolmaster with tears running down his face. You see, the scripture shows us that God did not hold back one ounce of his wrath. On his son. Not because his son did anything wrong, but that his son was willing to take our place. And so God can't be shown to be partial. Peter said that I've learned that God is not a respecter of persons. And so he laid all of his wrath against the back of his dear son. Now listen, I want you to understand something this morning. That's the wrath you deserve. That's the wrath I deserve. But I want to ask you this morning, are you sure? Are you sure that you're ready? Because there's something you need to understand. If God is going to lay such a great wrath against the back of his dear son, then you've got to realize today that God has expectations. And he said that I am holy, therefore be ye holy. You see, God expects full surrender. Don't think that God's going to allow you to stand before Him and claim to be an heir of Jesus. Don't think that you're going to stand before God having given nothing less than your best. Before God, well, I didn't think salvation is a works-based salvation. Listen, it absolutely is not. But you will. You will bow and call Him Lord if you want to be under His blood. Amen. You're not going to lay claim and say that I'm an heir to the blood of Jesus if you've not fully surrendered to Him. Why would God lay out such crushing blow to His Son? And then let you do it halfway and claim that the blood of his son bore as he drank all of the cup. 
is going to be for you when you only gave half of your life to him. You see, we give up our sinful nature. Now listen, I know, I know, it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, it doesn't mean you're not going to sin. But you know today that God knows the difference. God knows when we're in full surrender to Him and He knows when we're not. He knows when we're playing church and He knows when we're not. He knows that when we are surrendered to Him, and listen, we are going to wrestle against flesh and blood, including our own. Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Yes, our sins will be covered by the blood, but listen, but it requires nothing less than full surrender. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 shows us today. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do you see that? I present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable. Listen, you cannot be Lord over your life and still claim Him to be Lord of your life. Amen? You're going to have to choose one. Listen, anybody, I don't know who this is for, but it's high time we quit playing church. Either He's going to be Lord of your life or you're going to be Lord, but you can't have it both ways. He says here, well, God understands. I like that one. God understands. Oh, he understands. Oh, folks, make no, make no bones about it. He understands. He understands when your life revolves around you or him. He understands. And for those that claim to be under the blood of Christ and say they don't even need church, oh, he understands. He understands exactly what they're doing, making excuses. I love the one best. I don't like going to church. There's a bunch of hypocrites there. Yeah. There's a bunch of sick people at the hospital. Don't stop you from going there to get treatment, does it? You can go with your arm, clean, hang and clean off. You need to go to the hospital. You're dripping blood. Listen, you, you, your arm's about ready to fall off. I ain't going to the hospital. There's sick people there. You know what I say? Come on to church and we'll have an extra hypocrite. We might as well all get together. Amen. Ain't no sense in just us gathering. We need you too. Hypocrites are us. Come get you some. If that's not about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's an excuse to be lazy. But do you think for a minute you'll stand before God and say that I gave my best? That I was in full surrender to you as Lord of my life? What do you think that response will be, folks? You see, we don't get to choose what worship is. We don't get to choose what good is. 
I was going to read a bunch of scripture, but for time I'm not going to. But listen, I want to challenge you today. I want you to look at the stories of three different characters in the Bible. And you tell me if they get to choose what worship looks like. Story number one. If you don't think that God gets to choose what's acceptable or not, how about we start off with asking Cain how God felt about his arrogant sacrifice. You know the story of Cain and Abel? Now listen, what we don't know, we don't know what God set up at that time. There's things that we're not privy to that he doesn't elaborate on in Genesis to tell us that after he made the skins for Adam and Eve, we know what the sentence was that he gave them. You know, Adam was going to have to till the ground and Eve was going to be childbearing and all that stuff. <clears throat> we know all that, but we don't know kind of what it meant as far as what's to be brought as sacrifices. We don't, we don't know that. But we do know this. Cain and Abel both came to offer a sacrifice. Abel, he brought one of the the firstborn of his flock, and sacrificed him there. Matter of fact, it says that he, he brought the fat. In Leviticus, we see that they burned the fat for a sweet, savory smell to be given toward God. I don't care what you say, the best-tasting best flavor isn't fat. I don't care what y'all say. Right? You get prime rib, get a little fat with the meat. Oh, my goodness. Man, make you want to kiss your mother, not smack her. But Cain brought the work of his hands. We don't know exactly what it was about his attitude. But we know that Cain got angry at God because God didn't like what he brought. That shows us an arrogance. I'm going to give God what I'm going to give and he could either like it or lump it. He might lump it. He might regret it. For an eternity. You see, you don't get to choose what's acceptable. Well, I'm doing the best I can. Are you? Are you doing the best you can? And I don't know what area of your life you're holding back, but God does. Well, when I get my finances straight, I'll start tithing. Yeah, sure you will. You'll find something else to spend your money on. When that bill's gone, you'll find something else. It's the way we do it. If you're waiting on a good time to have extra money to tithe, it ain't going to happen. If you're waiting on having more time to help people, it ain't going to happen. You know those people who actually give to time toward taking care of the poor and the hungry and all that? You know those people that take that time to do that? They sacrifice their time because they're just like you. They could be doing other things with their time, but they have chosen a time that's set out to do the work of God. We do know this. In Hebrews 11 it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. In other words, we're still talking about Abel today. Probably close to 4,000 years ago, maybe even more. Cain was arrogant and he got mad. The Lord said to Cain, by the way, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will, he, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We know what happened next, right? Cain in his anger did what? 
killed his brother. By the way, I've seen church people are still killing because I've seen brothers and sisters that haven't hardly lended a finger to do anything shake their fingers and wag their, their heads and everything else against people who are sacrificing their time to do as much as they can for the Lord. I've seen it. It's been happening for years and years and years and it'll continue happening. But it doesn't mean God ain't seeing it, folks. He sees. He knows. The next one is the story of Uzzah and the ark. Uzzah. By the way, I'll, you, if you want the, I see some of you writing. How about this? The first story is Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. The second one is Uzzah, found in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. If you have the My Custom Church app, it is in there. The ark had been captured away, and they're bringing the ark back, and David's got a whole procession going. He's got people singing and carrying on. And they have put the ark of the Lord on a cart. And Uzzah is one of the ones helping drive the cart. Well, what happened was, is one of the oxen that was pulling the cart stumbled. And when he did, the, the cart tilted. And when the cart tilted, the ark started to slide. And Uzzah, deciding, however, it and it may have been just a reaction. Doesn't matter. You see, because God told him not to touch the ark. No man was to touch the ark. Matter of fact, the ark was supposed to be carried, not put on a cart. The fact that God was even allowing him to put it on the cart shows that he is long-suffering. You see, in the ark, they had these rings on each side. And they were to take these long wooden staves or poles and put through the rings. And it was only a specific clan of the tribe of Levi that was designated to bear the ark. Now you're going to have to go back through Leviticus and all that, kind of find all that stuff. But in 2 Samuel is this story here. So they were already mishandling the ark. But then when the oxen stumbled because they shouldn't have had it on there to begin with and the ark started to fall, Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark so it doesn't fall. And God's anger was kindled against him. And he struck Uzzah dead. Dead. Some people say, I can't believe God would do that. I mean, all he did was try to catch the ark. I don't care what you think. Or even what I think. You see, unless we become real and realize that God is a consuming fire and that he is holy, and when he says do it this way, that's exactly what he means. They were already handling the ark wrongly. And then Uzzah somehow thought, I like Vadi Bochum said this, Uzzah somehow thought that somehow his hand was cleaner than the dirt. He said the dirt had never sinned. Uzzah had. Uzzah did what God told him not to do. You don't get to choose what is 
righteous and acceptable to God. God chooses. So instead of trying to talk ourselves into somehow, like we're, well, God knows that I'm doing this and I'm doing the best I can and I'm trying really hard. Listen, I don't want to hear it because I, I don't need to do it either. You got to realize you ain't going to answer to me. If you're going to answer to me, I give you a pass. You know why? Because I'm as dirty as you are. I had to apologize openly to three people this morning before I could preach. Why? Because I sinned against them. But more than that, I'm going to show you in the scripture, I didn't just sin against them. You know what I did? I sinned against God. And folks, until we realize that when we sin, we're sinning against almighty, holy God, then we don't see our sin as dirty as it really is, do we? There's Uzzah. Then there's another guy, Uzziah. That's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verses 16 through 21. I don't know what it is with these words, Uzzah, Uzziah. You may have heard the term Uzziah, right? Isaiah chapter 6, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw God high and lifted up his train filled the temple, right? You all know that story? Uzziah was a great king for doing some great things for many years. But even great kings get too big for their britches. This is what happened to Uzziah. You see, Uzziah had become strong and proud. God had used him to win some wars and do some great things. But then Uzziah decided to go in to the temple to burn incense on the altar. And that wasn't his job. God had a specific way of doing things and for the priest to do. And Uzziah was not a priest. So Uzziah somehow thought that he, well, I know that God had told the priest to do this, but you know, me and God, we're close, we're like this. You know, I've won a bunch of wars for him. I've done a bunch of stuff for him. And so, and God has blessed me greatly. So, uh, you know, instead of having the priest do it, I think I'm going to go. I, now, listen, I don't know if that's what he thought. My, something happened. But he went in there and then they said, hey, Uzziah, you can't do that. And he got angry. And in that moment, he was struck with leprosy. And he died a leper. You see, from that moment on, Uzziah was separated from worship. He could never enter the temple again, even as a congregant like you are this morning. He couldn't even go in and sit just in the presence of the, tent of, of the meeting area. He was forever unclean. Couldn't even live with his wife and family. Had to live separately. God, in a moment, separated him from worship, and from his family. Why? Because he did not follow God's command. Folks, until we understand the wrath and the righteousness of God, then we'll never see ourselves in the correct light. We'll never see ourselves as the sinful beings that we are. We must realize that we all sin, and the sin that we do and we commit 
is against holy, righteous God. And there's another story. You write this down. I'm just going to give you the, I'm going to give you the condensed version. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 through 15. 2 Samuel 9, or 2 Samuel 12, 9 through 15. You see, this story is about David. After David had sinned with Bathsheba, he sent Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. He sent him into the war. He told the generals to send Uriah into the hottest battle you can find. Why? So that Uriah would be killed. And so he could hide the fact that he had slept with Uriah's wife and that she was pregnant with his son. And so then God sends Nathan the prophet to David and tells David a story about a rich man and a poor man. A rich man had a bunch of lambs and this poor man only had one lamb. But the rich man, instead of sacrificing one of his lambs, goes and takes the lamb from the poor guy and sacrifices it instead. And David's like, you tell me who that is and I'll go there right now. And they're like, Nathan said, you are that guy. David, you. And David's response was unique and short, but it's to the point. I have sinned against God. Had he sinned against Bathsheba? Yes. Did he sin against Uriah? Yes. But most of all, he had sinned against God. You know, sometimes when we do wrong, we, we, we see people's faces, and I could give a thousand reasons why. Well, that person knows how I am. They know I kid a little bit. Matter of fact, well, that's the Old Testament, Huff. Well, Jesus kind of told the same story, and I'm going to read this one. It's found in Matthew 25. And he says this in verse, starting at verse 41. It says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you, cur you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but for the righteous into eternal life. You see what Jesus is saying here? When they asked him what the greatest laws were, what did he say it was? First of them was Lord, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There's an old bluegrass song that says this. If you don't love your neighbor, then you don't love God. You see, we can't sin against our neighbor and then walk in here like everything is just absolutely peachy keen. Because if I've sinned against my neighbor and I didn't make it right, I've sinned against God. And today I could not stand on this pulpit and preach about the holiness of God and sinning against God and not make it right with my brothers before I start. 
Now I want you to think about your sin. Think about the time that you offend people. Think about the time that you've declared someone else is not worthy of the gospel. Think about the times that we talk about the people who live across the, across the ocean that dress different than us and have a different religion. Now listen, if they keep following their religion in Muhammad, are they going to die and go to hell? Absolutely. But until then, that's an opportunity for us to love because Jesus said to love your enemies. Where do we come off with the right to declare somebody else not worthy of life when we ourselves sit here in our sin? Now listen, to me and some of my redneck buddies, that don't go over so good. But I'd rather be a friend to God and tell the truth. I saw a thing not too long ago where David Platt was talking about in churches in America, you just don't hear of God's wrath anymore. It's all about his love. Body Bochum says we've sissified Jesus into some lover type as, as almost like Pepe Le Pew. Remember Pepe Le Pew? Right, just wanting, some, wanting, wanting that cat to fall over. No, it's skunk, right? It's just like, oh, just Jesus is just, just lover of people. He's just going to die if he doesn't, if you're not with him. He's just broke. His no, listen, Jesus gave his life a ransom for you. He has already shown you his love. But make no mistake, you will not stand before God full of sin and declare yourself to be covered by the righteousness of Jesus if you haven't fully surrendered and called him Lord. Amen. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, it says this, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those of you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When they do not obey, listen, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, not the gospel according to Huff, not the gospel according to anyone else. It doesn't matter how many people they have in their congregation. It doesn't matter how many books they have written and how they word it. Listen, there are a lot of people leading people astray because they don't teach the grace of God as measured against the wrath of God. It's all just about love. And they actually act, even people like Rob Bell, even declare that hell is not even real. But I want to assure you today, the wrath of God, it is real. And hell is a real place. And it will last for eternity. And people that you love will go there if they do not accept the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can make excuses all you want. And listen, that goes for, for people's lifestyles and whatever it is. Listen, we know God says and He gives the command, we all have something in our nature that we have to fight against. But listen, but if we try to take our sinful nature and then declare it as righteous, then we'll drink from the cup of His wrath. The world wants to shake their fists and say, how can a God say that he loves? He does love. But let me in a little on a little secret. He also hates. I was challenged by a passage that was found in the book Radical. 
David Platt talked about this, how he was railed against even by people in his own church. Started receiving emails and phone calls and all these things saying, how can you dare say something? And this is what he said. How about I read it to you? I don't want to speak for him. I'll let him speak for him. You can be mad at him. It says, yes, God is a loving father, but he is also a wrathful judge. And his wrath, he hates sin. Habakkuk prayed to God. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrong. And in some sense, God also hates sinners. You might ask, what happened to God hates the sin and loves the sinner? Well, the Bible happened to it. One psalmist said to God, the arrogant stand in your presence, and you hate all who do wrong. Fourteen times in the first 50 Psalms, we see similar description of God's hatred toward sinners, his wrath toward liars, and so on. In the chapter in the Gospel of John, where we find one of the most famous verses concerning God's love, we also find one of the most neglected verses concerning God's wrath. Turning your Bibles to Psalms chapter 5 with me, if you will. I won't labor too much longer, but I'll labor long enough. Amen? And that's just the way it's going to be. Turn to the book of Psalms chapter 5. Verses 4 and 6 in Psalms chapter 5 says this, For you are not of God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful Man, when we start wishing destruction upon another people group, we have become bloodthirsty and deceitful because that is not the way of Christ. He says we are to love those who do wrong. And Wednesday night we've been talking about being able to, to deal with objections to the gospel. And I read out of 2 Peter where it says that we need to be ready to give a defense. Now in that he's talking about even sometimes they were hauled in before the magistrates and there they had to be ready to give a defense of the love that is found in them which is first found in Jesus Christ. Why is it that you are just ready to, to let your body be sent to a painful death? Why? Because of what Jesus did on the cross because what you can do to me here may last for a little while. Amen. But what God will do to those who reject his gospel will have it for eternity. Amen. There was a guy in India that they found was a follower of Christ. And they were filleting him alive. If you've ever filleted a fish, you know what that is. As they were cutting the skin off of this man alive. He started to pray and he thanked them. You may ask why. Why would he thank them? He thanked them and he said this, thank you for taking off this outer garment because soon and very soon I'll put on the new robe that God has planned for me. Do what you will. 
This is why people tied to, the, tied to a stake with a fire kindled around them and burned to death prayed for those who started the fire until their jaws would lock from the sinews of the muscles had done clamped down on their jaws and even then you could hear their voice box and then praying for the ones who had lit the fire. Why? Because that's what God tells us to do and He will drive us when we are centered with Him to love even the unlovable. God hates the bloodthirsty. One guy told me, so you know what it is. You know how God says it. God, family, and country. No. And that's not what he says. I don't worship at a flag that has stars on it or any other item on it. I worship at the feet of Almighty who tells me to love even those who hate me. It says here that God hates sinners. And that's why David Platt was railed against so bad. How can you say that? We've always heard, you know, God hates the sin, loves the sinner. How can you say that? He said, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't have used such a strong word as hate. How about I use the word abhor? As if that is better. In Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 11, it says, Then I, I saw a great white throne unto him who was seated on it from his, pres, uh, from his presence. Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. What was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death and if anyone's name was not found it written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire my friends that is what will happen to those who are not under the blood of Jesus Christ and you may ask yourself today how can God hate a sinner and then in John 3, 16, say, for God so loved the world. You see, friends, there's something in the middle of God hating the sinner and God loved his creation. And I want to tell you that 2,000 years ago, they collided at the cross of Calvary. God hates sin and wrath had to be delivered. But he said, I love you. I hate sin. I hate those who practice sin. But I love you as my creation. So I will give my son and I will make him drink from the wrath all the way to the dregs for you. I hate those who do evil. I love my creation. And they collide at the cross of Calvary. That's what happened that day 2,000 years ago when God laid the wrath upon us all on the back of His dear Son. Amen. You see, here's the thing that scares me. In Matthew 13, for those people who think that the New Testament doesn't preach hell, they haven't read those red letter sections. You all know what I'm saying? Matthew 13, starting at verse 40, this is Jesus speaking. He says, just as the weeds were gathered and burned with the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. 
the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what Jesus said. In John chapter 3, you know that chapter has got the famous words, for God so loved the world. Verse 35 and 36, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. They don't read the rest of the chapter. Matter of fact, verse 17 says, God came not to condemn the world because the world was condemned already. Are you ready? I'm not talking about just trying to find a little bit of peace in amongst your busy life that centers around you. I'm talking about have you fully sold out for Jesus. That means he gets to choose what is right and what's wrong. Well, Pastor Ruff, I just feel like you don't understand. I, I, have, I have these feelings. I get it. You're not the only one that has a desire for sin. You're not the only one that has a taste for things that God hates. I do too. I've got a quick tongue and a short fuse sometimes. You kind of got that, don't you? You saw that today. I don't know, maybe God just revealed a little piece of me so you wouldn't think for a moment that while I stand here, I stand here in any different shape than you. You see, but what may be the difference is the fact of what I accept is right. Doesn't mean I always do it. But I realize that any of my sin, all of my sins are done against a holy God. You see, when I mistreat my wife, and when I say things to her, that are hurtful. Yes, I'm sinning against her, but I'm sinning against God. When I discipline my children out of anger instead of out of godliness, I'm not sinning. I'm not just sinning against my child, I'm sinning against God. You see, you can either sit there today and try to justify yourself and try to make yourself feel better. Well, God knows. He knows. He knows what I'm going through. He know. Yeah, God knows. And He still leaves you without excuse. You see, because the scariest verse in the Bible, to me, both personally, and especially as a pastor, the most scary verse is this: Matthew seven twenty one twenty three. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter in the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do, prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is serious stuff. It's not just about loving the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, but we must also love our neighbor as ourselves. He said that it is us, his followers. It's our role to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, take care of those folks. It is for us to propel the message of the gospel. It's not good enough that you know who Jesus is. We must strive and do all we can to compel everyone that we love and know and anyone that we have any influence with that Jesus loves them. Are you ready? Is your house ready? Are your friends and neighbors and co-workers, are they ready? It's not good enough just for you to be ready. Are they ready? Or are you so caught up in your life that you don't care about the life of anyone else? If so, then this verse ought to scare you too. I don't think you write books on this stuff and make millions. That's not what concerns me. You see, honestly, for over a year, God's been dealing with me. He's like, you know, it doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what our denominational leaders say what church should look like. It doesn't matter what other denominations say church should look like. I've been seeking God. God, what does your church look like? And you know what raises me? We ain't had Sunday school in over a year, yet I see these young ones lift their hand praising God. What does that tell me? That tells me that when God is taught in the home, that children respond. You know why? Because all the way back in Deuteronomy, it was very clear that the role of the spiritual leader of our children is to be the parents. What does God's church look like? What does it mean to follow God's plan and do as God says do? Because this scripture tells me that there are many who are tricked into thinking that everything's okay. That they don't have to fully sell out. It was interesting. There was someone who was teaching a class, WVU, our son was in, and he was taking a class on religion. Kind of surprised me, but hey, it was great. So when the te- when the when the professor who had a doctorate in the subject and claimed to be a Christ follower started talking about Christianity, my son questioned him, wait a second, that's not really what that means. And this is what Jesus teaches. And you know what his teacher told him? Well, that's for radicals. In case you haven't looked at the gospel message, it's radical. A radical abandonment of Huff and a full surrender to Almighty God. He will take nothing less. Would you stand?